You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Hi there, it's Shelly Care. How are you doing? So I hope you're having a fantastic week. So I wanted to tell you, I am having a free video event and you're invited. So I'll have the links below. It's coming up on Saturday, February 19th, and it's called Discover the Transformative Power of Genealogical Regression. And so we're going to talk about the actual scientific evidence that shows that working with our ancestors and sending them healing light is important. We'll talk about past life regression. We will talk about my genealogical regression process. And I am going to take you on a, an amazing guided journey where you're going to be able to come face to face with some of your ancestors and send them love and light. So I hope you can join me. And if you can't be there for the actual event, go ahead and register anyway, because when the event's over, you will receive an email so that you can watch the replay. All right, so I can't wait to see you, and I will see you soon. Bye-bye. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hi there, friends. Welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I have an amazing healer and teacher on the program today. Jan Phillips has an incredible book that's out from Unity Books. It's called Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. In this book, she's talking, she's taking an epic journey around the world. It's an amazing book, Jan. Welcome to Healing Arts. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I love traveling and I just loved your journey. Um, I guess start, start from the beginning. Um, you've had quite a life story and I was wondering if you could tell us about your time in the convent and what happened to you. Sure. I entered the convent in 1967 after waiting six years because I decided to be a nun when I was 12 because I was suicidal at age 12 because I was queer. And that's very, very bad news for a little Catholic kid. And so all the messaging around homosexuality was just terrible, terrible messaging from the church, the culture. 
my family everywhere. So I was su suicidal. My sixth grade nun recognized something was wrong. So she started this campaign, positive reinforcement campaign, and enlisted my mom in it, which meant the two of them kind of pummeled me with affirmations for a couple months to kind of see if they could rewire my brain and consider myself all that and a successful, bright, athletic young kid. And that worked. And the day that it worked, I woke up, instead of feeling like a sad little caterpillar, I woke up a butterfly. That's the day I knew that nuns had a secret magic wand or something. I didn't know what they had, but I said, if a nun can save my life and make me feel good about myself, then that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. So from 12 to 18, I waited and I, I had kept tunnel vision about it. I never thought about, you're going to have to take vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience obedient special because I never was such an obedient kid but when I went into the convent I actually loved it because it was a boot camp of a kind you know they organize your whole day and what I discovered when I looked back at why I was so happy in the convent it's because they divvied up our days into kind of equal parts of prayer and service and solitude and community. Four elements, which to me were my formula for bliss. And I was dismissed after two years because they discovered that I was gay and that certainly wasn't a good fit. So they sent me home, which was the worst ever experience of my life that took me 20 years to get over because I couldn't see being so traumatized by that rejection and soon after the, the Catholic Church did the same thing to me right we're not going to give you absolution or the sacraments if you continue to be a practicing gay person so it was only later when I rediscovered the formula for bliss can be <clears throat> recreated in my own life if I just would balance my days with prayer, service, solitude, and community. So to this day, all these many years later, I wake up, I say my prayers, I do my meditation, and I say, what am I going to do for service today? What am I going to do for community today? So that's what happened. And, but in the convent, I was lucky enough to have a, a priest who helped us separate faith from religion and understand that religion is something that we inherited. It's a set of doctrines and dogma, which you can believe in or not. But faith is something that we create. Each of us individually creates our own living faith or living spirituality based on our ultimate commitments. 
that which you care the most about is that force that drives your living spiritual life. So my social activism, because I took the lead from Jesus, because at that point, I didn't have any other spiritual teachers. I hadn't been to Japan or experienced Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. So I only had Jesus. But what I knew from Jesus was be on the side of the poor, speak out for the marginalized, always be a force for peace, never collude in war. So as an 18 year old postulant in the convent, I had the opportunity. It wasn't easy. They had to go like pull us up and get us to mature some in order to figure out our ultimate commitments. That was not an easy process for us because Catholics teach you what to think, but they never teach you how to think. So Father Grobis had to teach all of us how to let religion be on the top shelf for a while and really rethink our relationship to Jesus, the man. Absolutely. And this terrible experience that you had, like it really lit the fire under you then to be an advocate for others in your own community as well as the world at large. Well, except for it wasn't the terrible trauma of being dismissed from the convent that led to it. It was the terrible homophobia I experienced on a college campus that led to me saying, people can't act badly because they're homophobic. That's not right. So I just became a gay activist. I went, waltzed off to the human sexuality professor because I was in his class the year before and I knew he brought in people from the community. He brought in transvestites and bisexuals and different kinds of folk so that we would expand our dimensionality about sexual expressions. And so I walked to his class and I said, I'm experiencing terrible homophobic behavior. And I wanna to talk to your class about what it's like to be a lesbian in, and have to face down this force all the time. So he let me come and talk to the class. And that was my very first activism. I didn't have to go to books. I was just talking from my personal experience, which is all I ever talked from. Right. It's so important um, that you're doing this and we would like to think that we would be further along and yet we still have a long way to go in equal rights for all people. Yeah, we would like to think that, wouldn't we? We would like, <laughs> and yet there's still work to do, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about one of the things in your book, you went on a epic world tour um, based on something that I've long loved, the hundredth monkey oh, kind of inspired you to go, oh, I love that. And I was wondering if people don't know what the hundredth monkey is, I was wondering if you could just tell us about that and how this inspired you to travel around the world. Yes, in a nutshell, 
So it was serendipitous, right? They, they, some people say there are no accidents, but this felt like a happy accident. I was working as a picture framer, come into work one day, and there's this little book, The Hundredth Monkey, on my workbench. And I thought, where did this book come from? Didn't know, didn't know who left it there. But on my lunch hour, I took it off. Uh, I took it to my lunch, went to get a, a burger or something somewhere, took it with me, read it all while I was eating my lunch. And the story, it's a somewhat hypothetical story, but it goes like this. There's these research scientists studying monkeys off the coast of uh, uh, these islands off of Japan. And so they provide them with different kinds of stimulation to see what their behavior is. And then they, it's like Jane Goodall just watching the chimps and making her observations. So one day they put a bushel of sweet potatoes down in front of the monkeys. And what they noticed was all the monkeys came, they picked up the sweet potatoes and started eating them. They're covered with dirt and debris and stuff, but there was a little girl monkey who took her sweet potato down to the stream and washed it off. So then the eating experience was such more pleasant experience. And this, so the mama follows, they had named this baby monkey Emo. So the mother follows Emo and all the other little monkeys had followed Emo too. So they all start washing off their sweet potatoes before eating them. And what the scientists noted supposedly was there was a particular number. It probably wasn't exactly the hundredth, but when a particular critical mass of those monkeys understood that it was way smarter to wash your sweet potato off before eating it, then that it was like a cultural breakthrough, an evolutionary step forward. And from that moment, all of the monkeys on that island just immediately took their sweet potatoes to the stream. And within three weeks, monkeys were doing that on all the islands around. So the point is this, that we can communicate without language through intention, through thought, through energy, higher, more evolutionary ideas to each other that cause the whole body politic to rise up. And when I read that, I thought, oh my God, I sat there in the booth and said, I could be the hundredth person. And that's how it, that's how that book entered into me. I thought I could be the one, cause I don't know any other foreign languages, but I could go around the world cause I'm a feminist photographer. I have a slideshow on the peace movement. It was all anti-nuclear at that time cause Ronald Reagan was the president and he was building up our nuclear arms just in a horrifying way. So I, and as a political activist, I go to all the marches. So there I am with all my slides. So I have two slideshows, women's movement, and the peace movement. And that's what I packaged up and put in my backpack. 
I knew I would need a bunch of money. So before I left, I got three different jobs and saved up $5,000. And when I spent that all, I would come home. So that's how I got around the world. I just, I started in Japan at Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and then I just went east. Japan, Hong Kong, China, Thailand. And so the deal was I just would be a person who would, I had like a dog and pony show. So the deal was groups would come and have me talk. I talked to the group, encourage people to just redefine peace as something accessible that we ourselves can be responsible for in our own lives and communities and relationships. And then they, somebody would put me up. So that's how come I could last for a year on $5,000. I hardly ever was in a hotel. Once I can remember in Alexandria, Egypt, I took myself to a nice hotel. Friends, you need to check this book out. It, I love your stories. Um, I had been to Japan as well and just reading about Tokyo and um, Hiroshima. It's very profound there. And it was just wonderful to go on that journey with you. You went over to India and you had a whole experience there. And then you spoke about the foundations of your foundation in Nigeria. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your Living Kindness Foundation, because it's so important. Sure. So we skip India. It was 2010. I had decided in my um, prayers and my meditations that I was now ready to do some international work. The only thing I knew was I wanted it to be Africa and it would probably be with women and children. So now I open myself up to this possibility. Within weeks, I get an invitation to go to Nigeria and lead a retreat for a community of Dominican sisters in visionary leadership. Because I had just written a book called the art of original thinking, the making of a thought leader. So it was on the tails of that, the invitation came. And I, and the nun that invited me was the only white sister, the only American, and all the other co community were all Nigerian sisters. And I said to her, what are you doing there in Nigeria? And she was the head of an NGO, which is just a nonprofit. She was the head of a nonprofit called Hope for the Village Child. And they uh, worked in five or six small villages where there's no power, no electricity, no plumbing, no anything, and brought education, brought wells, and helped the villagers advance their lives. And so I said to her, okay, I'll volunteer to come and lead the workshop, but you take me to four or five of your villages because I'm opening myself to what's my next work and maybe that will be where I hear the message. So we, they took me to four villages and the last one, it was late in the afternoon, probably 2.30 or three, we pull in and 
outside of this little school area, I say school, but don't visualize bricks, visualize, you know, like a, a wooden structure about the size of a single wide with four little rooms with no desks, no floor, no windows, no books, but spaces for the kids to be. And there's about 50 kids lined up according to size, like first grade, second grade, all lined up there with their crisp little uniforms on. I could, I look at my watch, I say, it's, how does this happen? It's 2.30 2 in the afternoon. What are these kids doing out there? What? The guy goes, they're waiting for the teacher. At this time of day, I couldn't believe it. And then they saw us pull up, pull in in the Range Rover and all the kids come running towards my door. They open the door, pull me out, drag me over to the schoolroom and all sit down and say, be our teacher, be our teacher. And I didn't know what to do. I've never been a teacher at elementary kids. I go, what's two plus two? They were like, four so proud so excited full of enthusiasm and i thought oh my goodness i have to make this hard on him i go what's seven plus eight 15 and now i knew these kids had been educated somebody had been there and that's all they want is a teacher i start crying right. i'm a big crybaby of the Western world, but I just start crying and mixed with joy, I said to them, this is your lucky day because I'm here and I'm going to help you get a teacher. I will help you get a teacher as fast as we can. And so I talked to Sister Rita afterwards. Hey, how come there's no teacher? She goes, two reasons. One is terrible corruption in the government, so teachers get paid whether they show up or not. The other one is that the roads are unnavigable and you have to have a motorcycle or a four-wheel drive vehicle. Uh, these teachers don't. So if it rains, they can't get up to the school. So we brainstormed and heartstormed and came up with the idea Maybe we could get the tribal chief to donate some land and maybe we could build a learning center that had two apartments. So two teachers could live up there in the village. And that was our plan. So we went to the villagers, asked them, would they like that? Went to the tribal chief, asked him, he donated a plot of land. I came home, legalzoom.com start the Living Kindness Foundation and started fundraising because I said, Rita, Sister Rita, tell me how much it will be to build what we're talking about. So she got the architectural guy to say it would be $25,000. Cheap because no electricity, no plumbing, right? Mm -hmm. $25,000 for a learning center, which has like 30 stations around it. We got, and then I raised funds wrote grants, produced events that caused us to get the 30,000, 25 plus more for solar energy and computers and everything. So now it took us like three years to actually get the building completed. But now 
you know, they're learning how to be organic farmers. They have um, software for the kids that's appropriate to their culture. It's African. It's not like, look, Jane, look, see the dog. It's not what we grew up with. It's like African stories. And I just feel really proud about it. And so since the Nigerian project is done, my commitment is to address the worst social problem that we have in this country, which in my opinion is racism. So now I'm working with some black women writers in San Diego to come up with a program for uh, poets in the schools to amplify that program. So we get more kids involved in writing about the realities of their lives and and seeing themselves as co-creators of the culture we live in. I think that's fantastic. And you should be very proud of, of the work you've done and that you're doing and that you've been doing. You've got a lot of amazing books. One of the stories in this book that I love and also friends at home, I'm gonna put up Jan's website, go to her website. She's got her TED talk there where she relays this as well. Excellent TED talk. I enjoyed it, very inspiring. Um, tell us about what happened in Death Valley when you're talking about, you know, everybody's waiting for someone to come in. And then sometimes we have to realize, guess what? It's us. So tell us about what happened to you in Death Valley. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, everybody's waiting or praying to some external being or singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. So we're kind of in a culture that said, don't worry, don't do anything. You're not in charge. God is in charge. So that's just, you know, the sea that we're swimming in. So I go to Death Valley, take pictures, trying to figure out. I have a crisis in my life. So I took myself to Death Valley for a three-day pilgrimage to see if I could hear the solution to my crisis. On the way home, it's August. It's really, really hot. I see this flock of birds. You know, they're called murmurations. It's when thousands of birds all do the same action at once. It's, just, it's a force of nature. It's, un, it's unbelievable. So that was occurring right outside my window. So I pulled my car off into the breakdown lane. I have a video camera and I was leaning against the front of my car to stabilize myself, videotaping when all of a sudden there was a terrible crash. And all I heard was this massive sound of metal on metal. And then everything went black and silent. And then the next thing I knew, I was on the ground, face down on the ground underneath my car. So what had happened is, is the guy driving a big van, he had just given himself an insulin injection. So I think his perceptions were off but he thought my car was on the road going 70 miles an hour. So he hit the back of my car. He didn't realize I was in the breakdown lane. He hit the back, he was going 75, hit my car, threw me and the car off into the field. And so I was unconscious under the car and I, became conscious only for a few seconds long enough to see oh man i gotta i gotta dig myself out of here this is terrible but when i went to try and shimmy out under the car it became clear that i was 
actually impaled. And then I couldn't shimmy anywhere. I couldn't dig. It was like trying to dig into my wooden desk. A hard scrabble. It was so impossible that I couldn't move. And I just said, oh my heavens, I'm going to die here. I was impaled under the muffler. So hot. Getting third degree burns, but the good news is when you get third degree burns, it, you don't feel anything because all your feeling cells are burned away. So on my back and on my hip, all that flesh is getting burned. Mm -hmm. And I'm going through a huge anxiety attack because I'm facing my own death. And then I was like, you know how two minds talk at the same time? So one mind is all afraid and little chicken shit. And the other mind's going, what kind of teacher are you? You're supposed to be some kind of spiritual teacher. Now you're crying because you think you're going to die. What about those shamans when they just take themselves up to the mountaintop and lay down and surrender and let the eagles and hawks come and take their bodies? Or what about those Eskimo wise people? They just go out into the snowbank when it's their time. What are you crying and anxious about? So it kind of like got some courage going. So I said, okay, I won't be anxious. I'm just going to surrender and release my body. And I actually said, here I come. Barely conscious. Here I come, I said. And I felt this energy go out through the soles of my feet. My shoes had been blown off me, so I didn't have any. It was just my bare feet. But I kind of heard this little sound like, So I knew my soul left, and when it left, there was no more Jan Phillips. It was just blackness all around. No tunnels filled with light, no relatives, just blackness all around. A tremendous sense of peace and security and comfort, nothing to be afraid of. And I remember feeling just a little curious, like, hmm. It sure feels good, but I'm surprised it's so dark. That was all. And then the next thing we hear is, oh, my God, is somebody there? Is anybody alive? And my soul hears that and enters right back into my body, reanimates my body. And I say to those voices, I'm alive. I'm here. And I hear someone go, where are you? I go. I'm under the car. And so there was two young men who had seen this terrible accident to come to see if somebody's alive. And they, their first words to me are, wait there, we'll go get help. <laughs> and I'm, that was like so alien to me. And I said to them, you are the help. You are the help, just lift up the car. And they were all like so confident they didn't have the strength to lift up this smashed up Subaru outback wagon. And I said it one more time, you are the help, lift up the car. And the next thing you know, the car gets lifted up, two arms come in, pull me out, 
lay me on the ground, wait for the ambulance to come. So to me, the lesson from that experience is, you know, Jesus supposedly said, anything you see me do, you can do and even more, right? And Buddha and Jesus agreed on everything. Buddha said it in the same, pretty much the same way, be lamps unto yourselves, right? And all the spiritual masters say the same thing, which is don't go for help, be the help. You are that force. You are love materialized. You are healing power materialized. You, you are the materialization of divine energy. So what that really means in real life is we're the miracle workers. And so I had to convince those boys, but they're the ones that pulled off the miracle. It takes a village, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's not funny. And yet it is for them to go, wait right wait there. there. Like, Where are you going to go? I mean, right. Kind I, of, uh, I would disposed at that moment. Come on. But it's such a great story and you're exactly right. I mean, I think we all think that someone else out there is going to come in and swoop in and take it all away, but we have to do something. Yeah, it's us. It is. It is definitely us. Tell us about, I'm going to circle back around now to India. I know India made a very big impact on you. I've been there a few times myself. It's an amazing place. So tell us your impressions and all of the insights that you had in India as well. The thing in Briefly. India to me that was the biggest change was that I found, like at, before India, everyone always says, so you got to go to India. It's so spiritual. It's so spiritual. It's like this big intrigue. It's so spiritual. What does that mean? And then you get in India and it's like the opposite of spiritual. There's just like millions of festivals because they got 500, you know, gods and goddesses. So there's tons of festivals and red things and all, you know, kinds of ceremonies. There's that going on, but ritual does not spirituality make. And there's just so much poverty. And I'm thinking real spirituality means to me, a country figures out how to have everybody have enough. Right. Right. America's not a spiritual country. We don't have any moral will. And so I wasn't, I wasn't in love with India. And I didn't have come to the conclusion that it was spiritual. But what I came to the conclusion was it had power over me because every day I find myself screaming in the streets. And I knew that was bad. I, I wasn't enlightened enough then in the mid eighties to know that my anger and rage is a sign of my problem, not someone else's problem. I didn't know that, but I did know it is not a good sign that I see myself like this in the street shouting. And I'll give you just two examples. So, you know, one is you go to a street typist to get it. I was typing a letter to send to my friends to say, get perilously close to running out of money. I will be your advocate. I'll be your walking boots and do the work that you want to do. Send me, you know, what you can to help me go further. And so this letter, I go to this, so nobody's got a, you know, there's street typists. There's guys on the street with their typewriters. 
So I said, can how much, how many rupees to get this typed? A hundred. No errors? Promise? Yes, no errors. So I give it to him. He goes, okay, come back later, get it. I come back later. I get it. I give him the hundred rupees. It's full of typos. And I say, this is full of typos because I'm a type, you know, I'm a typo Nazi. I cannot, I don't abide typos. So I said to him, there's like 25 mistakes here. He goes, hundred more rupees. And it was like, <laughs> oh no, you said a hundred rupees, no mistake. So that was one afternoon. The next morning I say to the guy, how many rupees, rickshaw driver, how many rupees take me to old Delhi? You know, 300 rupees. I go, all right. He gets lost on the way. It's like takes us an hour. At the end, he goes a thousand rupees. I go, you said 300. He goes, but I got lost. I said, that's not my fault. So those kinds of things get me all riled up. So I had a feeling, I made a pact with myself. I wasn't gonna leave India until I could have one day where I didn't get upset by external circumstances. So, the, you know, the days continue to go by. I'm, I'm on the bus. I'm trying to get to the train in time. But the bus pulls over on the side of the road because there's like a hundred poor Indians carving out the side of a mountain with like tablespoons because they're trying to give everybody work instead of bringing in bulldozers. So my bus is there waiting for hours. And so I missed the train. So it's just things like that occur. And you probably got your own litany. But I'm over here going, yes, yeah, yes, yes. That, that and the experiences in the bank trying to get money. It's just all so frustrating. So <clears throat> it took me three months of being there before I finally could have days that were like, I had trained myself to say, nobody's fault. Isn't this interesting? See it from another perspective. I mean, I had to rewire my brain. And so that to me was the greatest spiritual discipline that for three months every day, I tried to train myself out of being upset by when my expectations were, because you can't have American expectations in India. That is just ridiculous. That's for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, it's so true. Everything you're saying. I mean, um, India is like being dropped on another planet. It's so different than what we're we're accustomed to here. And you're exactly right. I love that. I mean, I think that's just life, right? I mean, the things that are very difficult, if we, once we get through them, we change our perspective, then they become really, really powerful. And yeah. that is super, super it cool. It takes time to do that in, in real like practice. That's yeah, and the point doesn't. You yeah, you can't wave the wand. In the forest. What's that? You can't just wave the wand, as yeah. you said. And, you and like you said, the, the expectations. We have expectations. We have attachment to outcomes. And I have my magic wand. Oh, goody, a wand. Okay, oh, go ahead and wave it, that over everyone for us. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yay, we're all we're all doing what we want. This is wonderful. Jan, it is a complete joy to meet you. Your book is brilliantly written and I absolutely love it. Um, endorsed by Deepak Chopra. It's incredible. Um, I just wish you continued success and just all the work you're doing as an advocate for others is wonderful. And just sending you lots of love and prayers as you continue your journey. And I can't wait to see what you're going to come up with next. Thanks. I hope you're on my mailing list. Go to Jan at janphillips.com. So you get my mailings. Every Sunday, I send out a little bulletin. Oh, yes. Let's do that. Words from, you know, Emily Dickinson once said, the only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. So these are called bulletins from immortality. And they're just short little quotes from me that kind of cheerlead for anybody on my list. Because we're That's all fantastic. in this together. Yes. The other thing I loved about your book was at the beginning of every chapter, you go into some very poetic language about what people are to, to expect. You have to see this yourself, friends. You've got to get the book. So the links will be below. And we will love to hear your inspiration every week on your mailing list. So we'll have your website below as well. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a joy to be with you. Yes, likewise, sending you many, many blessings for continued success. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And friends, we've done it again, another episode of Healing Arts. So check out Jan's information. You're going to love it. And you have to see her TED Talk. Amazing. And I'll see you next time on Healing Arts. Hi there, it's Shelly Care. How are you doing? So I hope you're having a fantastic week. So I wanted to tell you, I am having a free video event and you're invited. So I'll have the links below. It's coming up on Saturday, February 19th, and it's called Discover the Transformative Power of Genealogical Regression. And so we're gonna talk about the actual scientific evidence that shows that working with our ancestors and sending them healing light is important. We'll talk about past life regression. We will talk about my genealogical regression process. And I am going to take you on a, an amazing guided journey where you're going to be able to come face to face with some of your ancestors and send them love and light. So I hope you can join me. And if you can't be there for the actual event, go ahead and register anyway, because when the event's over, you will receive an email so that you can watch the replay. All right, so I can't wait to see you and I will see you soon. Bye-bye. Did you know that scientists now say that up to 50% of your personality is carried over through your DNA? I know, right? It's shocking, but apparently it's true. And that's the reason why you will love my book, Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life. Through the book, you can take guided journeys into the past and discover places where your ancestors need healing, you can send loving kindness, grace, and healing light to your ancestors and experience the ripple effects as that wonderful energy travels through time and affects all people in your family tree. So check out my book, Heal Your Ancestors to Heal 
your life from Llewellyn Worldwide. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at Past Life Lady or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady. <music>